welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And we have a sweet promise in Revelation 7-9 that he'll bring together every tribe and tongue and nation to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We read this in Revelation 7-9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. So before I begin, uh, I'd like to pray again. Lord, thank you for this time. Um, I pray that you use this time to encourage your people uh, and to equip us to share the gospel with those around us. Um, and as we, as we hear of Islam and how they deny Christ, would we be encouraged to to hear of Christ's deity and that Christ would make would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and grounded in love and we would be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would you do this for us tonight? Encourage us. In your name I pray, amen. So, Islam uh, is the second largest religion uh, in the world with approximately 1.3 billion people who profess it as of 2020. Um, now, most commonly, Islam is found in the Middle East and North Africa with a minority of Muslims in the American uh, and European regions. Most known um, Muslims around this area will be found in Chicago or the bigger cities like Chicago, Madison, and so you'll definitely run into them if you're in those cities. And even in Rockford, we have Muslims. We have a mosque, uh, I believe, on Mulford and Harrison. So we definitely have Muslims around this area. And even my own brother uh, confesses some of the beliefs of the Islam faith. So it's very practical for us today and here in America in Rockford. Being one of the three major monotheist religions, Islam is appealing because of its ethical and ritualistic aspects, in addition to its socio-political nature. Over the course of tonight, um, I'd like to show just brief history of the religion, uh, address some of its major doctrines, and how we as Christians are commanded to make disciples and hold true to our faith, um, and how we are to share the gospel with a professing Muslim. So I'll start with the history. The foundation of the Islam faith rests on the life and revelations of Muhammad. He was born in 570 AD, and both of his parents were dead by the age of six. Therefore, Muhammad was raised mainly by his uncle, and tradition indicates that because of his unideal upbringing, he was illiterate. 
Now, people uh, in the Islam faith will say that because he was illiterate and he had these revelations, that means that gives further inspiration to um, of his revelations that they were true. And though he was illiterate, Muhammad was a very spiritual man uh, who took meditation and prayer very seriously. Legend has it that when Muhammad was 40 years old, uh, he was meditating in a cave near Mecca. It's where he was born and raised. Here, the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and Gabriel instructed Muhammad to recite words that we now know as the first surah, or the first chapter of the Quran. After this meeting, Muhammad began preaching in Mecca, denouncing paganism, idolatry, and corruption. More revelations came to him throughout uh, this time. Muhammad grew quite a following in the Mecca area. Stung by the Muhammad's sermons, leading families in Mecca began persecuting him and his followers. Uh, so they fled to the mountains near Mecca. After this, uh, there was a dispute in Medina uh, in a blood feud that was ca- causing great disunity. So he was called to, sur- uh, to fix this blood feud. And once he got there, he was inaugurated as the ruler And so he still had followers in Mecca. So he wanted to bring them to where he was now ruling in Medina. So he brought um, all of his followers from Mecca to Medina, which is about 200 miles. And that pilgrimage is now called the Hijrah. Around 250 years after Muhammad's death, the revelations that he had in the recitations um, were written, were recorded in written form. That's important. Remember the year two, uh, 250 years after. The Quran is held to be the actual word of Allah, and therefore it cannot be translated or changed in any way. They believe that uh, the Quran cannot be translated out of Arabic, and if it is, then it's corrupted. And the other text that uh, the Islam faith uses is called the Hadith. That is basically the biographies of uh, the life of Muhammad. Known as the Shahada, the phrase, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger, is a central proclamation of the Islam faith. If you confess this, they believe that you're Muslim. So who is this Allah I keep talking about and who they claim to be God? I should, I should first mention that Allah is a pre-Islamic term. Uh, the word Allah is the word in Arabic for God. Um, Christian Arabic's use the word Allah to reference the God that we believe in the Bible. Uh, It's the word Allah is written in the Arabic Bibles. So this word Allah does mean God. But after the rise of Islam, whenever we hear the the word Allah, it's associated with the Muslim faith. So you have to be careful to make a distinction when you're talking with a Muslim. If they say Allah, you want to use a phrase along the lines of, I believe in the God of the Bible to make a distinction. You can't say Allah because they'll associate it with their God. So they, uh, they have a doctrine called the Tahid, which Muslims confess that Allah is one uncompromised united being. Their God is one in being with no persons, contains no plurality. So that means they deny the Trinity and they deny the deity of, of Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and that he lived without sin, but yet he was a mere prophet that Allah used to reveal himself. Islam does not accept uh, 
the doctrine of original sin. It denies the fall and therefore no need of a savior. They believe that salvation is earned by the proclamation of the Shahada, the phrase that I mentioned earlier, in doing the five pillars of the Islam faith. These pillars are the recitation of the Shahada, praying five times a day called the uh, Salat, fasting during the daylight hours of Ramadan called the Psalm, giving to the poor the Zakat, and traveling the pilgrimage from Mecca to Medina, the Hijra. Now, the pilgrimage is not a requirement of uh, salvation. It is simply a boost your view before God. Their salvation is completely works-based, so doing this will give you more points and works, you could say. Um, it's very interesting because they believe that if you die on this pilgrimage, it gives you even more points. So a lot of the old Muslim people, when they think they're about to die, they're going to go on this 200-mile walk hoping that they die on the way. So they have an even better right to stand before God. Um, a lot of these beliefs of the Islam faith are passed down and learned not by reading themselves and personal devotions, but through tradition and fatherly teachings in their home. Many Muslims know the history of their faith um, and religious vocabulary like the back of their hand. They have not extensively read uh, the text that they, they hold to. Not a lot of them have even read the Quran, not even past the first chapter. So this brings us to what we should what we should say when we have a gospel conversation with them. Um, first, when speaking of evangelism, I need to start with a foundation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So God uses men whom he has, by his grace alone, redeemed as vessels of the gospel. Man is not able to sit. Uh, to save or produce spiritual fruit, God alone has a power to save. Acts 4.12 testifies this truth. And, there's sal- and salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So next, recognizing God's sovereign power to save, our response is to pray. Jesus explicitly commands us to pray for laborers while promising that there is a great harvest. Uh, he says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. It's Matthew 9. So we can be sure if God has told us to pray for something, that he will answer it if we do. Um, So we are to pray. The first step in evangelism is to pray for opportunities to evangelize our Muslim friends and pray in faith knowing that he does have the power to save. Additionally, we're commanded to go with promises of empowerment. He says this in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God dwells within each believer by the Holy Spirit as a helper in evangelism. Uh, We see this in Luke 12. There's no need to fear. And he says this. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Then we come to this conversation that you have. We come to our Muslim friend who denies the infallibility of the Bible, the deity of Christ, and the triune God. What are we supposed to say? 
The Muslim will challenge our historical knowledge and apologetics of Jesus' death and resurrection, and our knowledge and accuracy of the canon scripture will be tested. First, I would encourage you to talk about um, the unity and historical accuracy of the Bible. We know that the Bible is the only historical record that we have that compiles eyewitness records while being originally written and thousands of other manuscripts written within a hundred years of Jesus' life. Now remember, the Quran was written 250 years after the death of Muhammad. So if you do the math, that's around, he was born in 570, so that's around, what, 810 AD, around there, that those were written. It's around 800 years after um, the life of Jesus. Never does the Bible um, contradict itself while keeping true to the archaeological history that we find. The more archaeological history that we find, the truer the Bible gets. We, uh, the Bible is the only book that was written over the course of 1,400 years, written by 40-plus authors, without one contradiction, error, or historical accuracy, inaccuracy. And the second, I would encourage you uh, to show biblical evidence that Jesus himself claims to be the Lord God. Muslims believe that, yes, throughout Scripture, in, in Titus 3, in Romans 1, in John 1, the, the Bible says that Jesus is Lord, but they deny that Jesus himself says that uh, he is God. But we can point to verses like Mark 14, 61 through 65, John 8, 58, John 10, 30, and John 10, 37 through 38 to show that Jesus truly does claim that he is God. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a really strong argument with a Muslim is you have scriptural evidence to refute the exact point that they're trying to make. And then third, I would talk about the fall and the effects of sin and the justice of God. Remember, they don't believe in the fall. They don't believe in, um, in original sin. So we can point to the Bible again. The Bible tells us that sin has brought corruption to a perfect world, that God has intended, what God has intended to be good, man has distorted to satisfy ourselves. Sin removes us from a right standing before God, and based on our sinful nature, all people apart from Christ are condemned. So being dead in our sins, that means that we are unable to please God. So to them, if salvation is based on works, we can say, but we're unable to please God. How can it be based on works if you're not even able to please God apart from Christ? So the Bible is clear that God created all things. He has expectations for how we are to live in relation to him. And we can agree that with Muslims that all people have sinned. So from here, if they agree that all people have sinned, which if they are professing Muslim, they would. Um, we can ask them, so how can a sinful being have a relationship with a just and holy God? And if you come to a, a conversation with a Muslim and nothing that I've said you talk about, so be it. But this one point I would urge you to talk about. Lastly, I would, I would plead with you to share with the Muslim the love of God revealed in the person and work of Christ. Many verses pertaining to God's love shown in Christ can be used uh, for this 
I, I personally would use John 3.16 with them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not only does this verse tell of God's infinite love, but it shows a sweet promise of eternal life for them. Um, it's not... It's, it's, it's a simple childlike faith that saves. It's not the quantity of the faith. It's the object of the faith that will save them. And we have a sweet promise in Romans 10.9. Because if you f- confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is probably the biggest verse that Muslims will have a problem with confessing to. Because they don't believe that Jesus is Lord and they don't believe in the resurrection. So you can share these sweet promises of eternal life while sharing the gospel with them. And like I said before, you trust God that he alone has the power to save them. Scripture is clear that Jesus, the second person of the triune God, came down from the heights of glory to live a perfect life, to be mocked, to be flogged, to be raised from the grave on the third day. And power ascend to the Father's right hand. Upon this ascension, he gave us the same power, the Holy Spirit, third person of the triune God produces conviction and faith and a love for God and an ability to please God by walking in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. As Christians, we reject the belief that Muhammad was an infallible prophet. We hold to the truth that God incarnate was born of the Virgin Mary, although Muslims believe this too, and he lived without sin. They'll confess that too. But this is where we differ, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, satisfied the Father's wrath upon a cursed tree, was raised from the dead on the third day. And that would prove that he was truly the son of God. That's what Romans 1 says. And ascended to the father's right hand as a messianic king. We confess the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit to be God. And one cannot divorce the father from the son and from the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, um, I think a very crucial part to sharing the gospel with a Muslim is to understand slippery Um, I think the, the most important aspect, not most important, but an important aspect is to understand the culture from which they, came, they come from. They come from an honor and shame culture. They are raised to live and die for honor. This honor comes from their family and pleasing their parents and affirming the traditions of culture. We also have to remember that in the uh, Islam faith in the Arabic culture that religion and state are together they're not separated and so for them to confess christ as lord they're opposing every part of the muslim religion they're opposing everything that their parents have ever taught them they're um, rejecting everything that their culture stands for and what will happen is they're cast out of their family their family will never talk to them again they will be cast out of the state too it's not just a matter of their family but it's also a matter of the state for them um, and everything that they have known in their entire life will be in shambles. And the sad truth, too, is married women in um, the Muslim culture, if they confess Jesus Christ to be Lord, their life is on the line. Either their husbands will kill them or leave them to die. Confessing Jesus as a Muslim is the only unforgivable sin to them. To confess that there is any God apart from the law is the only unforgivable sin. And so when you talk to a Muslim, a lot of the time, 
it's not the theological um, reasons that they don't submit to Christ. It's the sociological problems. Um, and so when you talk to them, you can tell them that you understand the hardship that they will go through and show them the example of Paul in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Um, so that is is on faith. Um, and hopefully you have a better understanding of their history, a better understanding of their doctrines and how to share the gospel with them um, in a simple way.